Ryan Miller, one of our super interns, ex-intern, is going to be preaching for us this morning. So he's going to take over from here. That's right. Thank you, Brian. Well, we're continuing our series through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And uh, I think I saw that we had 10 children, uh, 10 new births last year at church, including my own daughter, Millie. And uh, if we have any more coming this year, I know we have a few. This chapter is great if you're looking for names. Um, or, you know, if you're just tired of your own name, you have a really boring name like Brian White. There's some options here for you. So <laughs> let's, let, let's uh, get to the word here. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 10. <laughs> All right. I won't, I won't ask you to stand. It's somewhat long, but uh, hear now the reading of God's word. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Rephath, and Togarma. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Ketim, and Dodanim. From these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabtika. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Calneh, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ayr, Kalah, and Resin, between Nineveh and Kalah. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtahim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim as far as Lashah. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his day the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shalef, Hazarmaveth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mishah in the direction of Safar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah. 
according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for calling us here today to worship you, to enter your presence, and to be reminded of your grace to us despite our sin. Father, lift up our eyes so we can see the beauty of the story that you are telling, how it's so much bigger than what we often focus on, how we worry about the little things in our own life. Help us to look to your word today and be illuminated by the Spirit as we see you working throughout the nations. Father, help us have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to obey the word that you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, Rob explained why we pray for illumination before each sermon. He said, if the Holy Spirit doesn't illuminate the text for us, we're not going to understand it. We might as well be reading a phone book. And that seems doubly true today. When I first started preparing this sermon and read the passage, it felt like reading an ancient phone book. Now, genealogies are so much more than that, as we'll see today, but sometimes it can feel like that. But if you remember back to Genesis 5, it was this genealogy listing all the peoples and how long they lived. And Rob showed how their names taken together form this quote that proclaimed the gospel all the way back in Genesis 5. Well, this genealogy is not like that. The names do not form a quote. In fact, the only quote we get is in verse 9 where it says, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, with all due respect to this Nimrod, that's not what we think of when we think of his name nowadays. We think of a dunce or a fool. And you can thank Daffy Duck for making that popular. In an old animated short, he called Elmer Fudd my little Nimrod, sarcastically remarking on Elmer's hunting skills. But I digress. So last week, at the end of Genesis 9, we saw Noah prophesy about the fate of his sons. And Rob explained how God was telling the devil exactly what he was going to do. There was nothing the devil could do about it. And in an analogy fit for Super Bowl Sunday, Rob said that God was going to run the ball right down the middle. He, was, he told Satan the play that he was going to run. Well, today we're going to move from the playbook to the playing field. God still has to run this play, and so we're going to look at that. Because to switch sports metaphors, no one would remember Babe Ruth calling his shot if he didn't then hit a home run. So let's explore God's play as it plays out in the rest of the Bible. But first, we're going to look a little bit more at this genealogy. So here's a map to help us better understand all the names that we see. Oh, I'm in that map. <laughs> all the names that we see in the places communicated. Now, don't worry. There's not going to be a quiz after the sermon to see who gets to take communion. <laughs> I show you this just so you can visualize what I just read. And as you can see, Japheth is in the red, and he spread to the northwest mainly of Israel. And then we have Ham from the southwest to the northeast and Shem to the southeast. And like I said, unlike the genealogy in Genesis 5, which was chronological, this one is geographical. It's full of nations and clans and places. And this makes sense in light of what has gone before. It makes sense in light of the context of where we are in this story of Genesis. Recall that we've just come out of the flood, which as Rob described was a decreation event. 
You can put that down. It was a decreation event. God brought the floodwaters, which were a sign of chaos. He was starting with a blank slate. And Rob noted all the similarities with creation. In Genesis 1, there's the spirit hovering over the waters, bird-like. And then we see Noah sending birds out to see if the water had subsided. And then after decreation came recreation. Noah is portrayed as this second Adam. God reiterates his command to Adam, telling Noah to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And in Genesis 10, we see that playing out. Noah's descendants are filling the earth. We might say it was decreation, recreation, and now repopulation. We might call this the recreation mandate. You see, the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth is commonly called the creation mandate. And God doesn't just give mandates and rules and commands for no reason. They're not arbitrary. Originally, Adam and his descendants were tasked with extending this rule of God's kingdom from the Garden of Eden to the ends of the earth. Humans were meant to rule God's creation for the good of creation. The whole earth was meant to be God's kingdom. But as we know, Adam didn't get very far. He didn't really even get out of the Garden of Eden. But God didn't give up his plan. The creation mandate was still in effect. It would just have to come about through different means. But there's a problem here as well. As Rob noted last week, humans are still sinful. Even though it's Noah and his descendants, Noah was righteous, but he was a drunk. So while at first glance, this passage may look like Noah and his sons are fulfilling the creation mandate, repopulating the earth, it's more appropriate to say that God is working in spite of them. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if you look at your Bible, the very next story is the Tower of Babel. And there we see that humans are not interested in filling the earth. They're interested in doing the exact opposite. They sought to make a name for themselves by camping out in one city and building a tower to the heavens. And they give the reason that they do this. They say that they don't want to be scattered of the face, over the face of the whole earth. They're not fulfilling the creation mandate. And the Tower of Babel story starts by noting that the whole earth had one language. But if you turn back to our passage today, Genesis 10, you'll notice something curious. See if you can spot it. There's these summary statements after each of the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They're in verses 5, 20, and 31. And they all pretty much say, these are the sons of, insert the son's name, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Did you catch it? It's languages, plural. So though this genealogy in chapter 10 comes before the Tower of Babel, it's actually a result of it. It's a result of God scattering the people over the face of the earth. Noah's descendants are only filling the earth because God is scattering them. As the Apostle Paul says in Acts 17, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries for their dwelling. Another unique thing about this genealogy is that it is unique in the, history, in the ancient Near East. Now, other cultures, other civilizations had genealogies, but they were only interested in their own descendants, their own ancestors. It's like if we were to create a genealogy of San Diego 
We wouldn't care to include Nova Scotia, Canada, or what the people up there. But that speaks to the fact that the history of Israel was part of something bigger. God was never interested in saving Israel in and of itself. He was not interested in being the God of some overlooked nation in Podunk, Palestine. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God did not give up his plan for a worldwide kingdom. He didn't toss out the creation mandate. It would just have to come about through different means. Where this genealogy is located in Genesis also communicates this fact. It does mention Eber, where we get the word Hebrews, but it does so in passing. It does not include the genealogy from Eber to Abraham. That comes after the Tower of Babel story. And as one commentator puts it, there was a world of peoples before the call of Abraham, and it is that map of peoples that concerns the God of Abraham. Ultimately, out of concern for the salvation of the nations, God calls Abraham and his posterity. And that's exactly what we see when God calls Abraham in Genesis 12. He says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham and the Israelite nation were blessed to be a blessing. Israel is meant to be a vehicle of worldwide redemption. And that is why this genealogy is here, Genesis 10. That is why it's so much more than an ancient phone book. Now, it's typically called the table of nations. You might see that as your chapter heading in your Bible. And so what we see God doing here is setting the stage for worldwide redemption. He's setting the table, so to speak, hence the title of the sermon. Because the God who made all peoples and scattered all peoples has always had a plan to redeem all peoples. And this is what we see as we move to our second point. Now, recently I got into exploring my own genealogy and ancestry. It wasn't procrastination for this sermon. It was kind of 2019 BC, before COVID. And... Um, I found some pretty interesting things out. My family knew that we were in some way related to Meriwether Lewis, one half of the Lewis and Clark expedition that made it all the way to the Pacific. So I was able to find out how we were related to him. I also learned that my family came to America in 1632. But the most interesting thing to me is I learned that my great, 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 four great, great grandfather was a pastor himself. And he had a pretty interesting name. His name was Ami, and it means my people in Hebrew. And if we fast forward from Abraham to Israel, that's what we see God calling Israel, my people. They were meant to live under the rule of God. The Lord God was present with them in the temple, and their obedience and worship was meant to testify to the nations who the God of the universe was. Israel was like a die-cast toy, a miniature model of the kingdom of God. They were meant to be his faithful servants. But if we return to our football analogy, they committed a false start. They did not promote the kingdom of God to the world. And if they did, it was quite reluctantly, like the prophet Jonah, as James described in the reading of the law. Jonah was more interested in a plant that he did not grow than the salvation of Nineveh. 
And we can be the same way. We hoard God's blessings instead of using them to bless others. We don't view them as something that we steward to give to others, but as something that we deserve and earn, something that's our right. We love to be blessed, but begrudge blessing others. And because of this, Israel forfeited their right to the kingdom of God. They followed the kingdoms of this world and compromised their witness. You see, they looked so much like the world that the world wouldn't even believe what, they, what Israel proclaimed that they believed. They squandered the blessing, so God's presence was taken from them, the temple was destroyed, and they were sent into exile. They were not the vehicle of redemption they were supposed to be. So now we see God's got a couple of problems. He scattered the earth, but they're unreached. And Israel, who's supposed to bring them redemption, is in exile. And that is the situation when we get to the book of Isaiah, which is probably one of my favorite books. Rob likes to say, like, everything's his favorite passage. Isaiah is one of my favorite books. It's this beautiful, like, puzzle where all the pieces of the Old Testament come together and we see what God is doing for his people and for the world. And this is where God introduces the true faithful servant, the true Israel. Isaiah describes one who will come and accomplish what God plans to do. In Isaiah 49, speaking to this future servant, God says, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Here we see God not giving up on his plan and he wasn't just going to save Israel. That is too light a thing, too insignificant, too trivial. Rather, the servant will be a light to the nations. He will extend God's salvation to the ends of the earth. And given the fact that we live on this side of the cross, we know that this servant is none other than God in the flesh. We've seen that sinful humans cannot and will not bring about the kingdom of God so God scatters them for their own good, and he comes to redeem them at the cost of his own life. Salvation is costly, and God foots the bill. Isaiah says later in chapter 53 about this servant, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. We rebelled against the king, yet he came bringing peace. The king of the universe is the prince of peace. He reconciled the world to himself, not counting our sins against us, but healing us by his wounds. Now, as Brian so wonderfully shared from the pulpit earlier, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. When God sees you, he says, Ami, my people. So we see that God did not abandon his goal for a worldwide kingdom. He sent his son to bring about this redemption. And we see that God did exactly what he told the devil he was going to do. He ran the ball down the middle. But he doesn't just tell us to sit on the sidelines and watch as spectators. He puts us on the field. And that's what we'll see as we move to our last point. Christ was sent to seek out the lost, and he calls his church to do the same thing. 
To return to Isaiah, Isaiah says this in his very last chapter. He says, The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have never heard of my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. Do any of those places ring a bell? They're in Genesis 10. God's plan announced all the way back then is playing out now. These survivors that Isaiah speaks about is us. We have survived the judgment of God because Jesus took it for us. And now we're called to proclaim his glory. God is blessing us to bless others. He mobilizes us to proclaim salvation to the world. Second Corinthians says, He has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now, I really like this imagery of being an ambassador. I think if I was to start a church, that would be one of the leading contenders, ambassadors church. It's this imagery of how we are Christ's representatives. We are messengers for the king. That is what we are called to do. But what does this look like practically? I'll give us two things to consider. First, let's remember Acts 17. God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Let us remember that we are united in our ancestry. There's a lot that unites us, but we tend to focus on that which divides It's like those spot the difference pictures that kids usually have. There's these two nearly identical pictures. And you're supposed to pick out what's different between them or what's missing in the second picture. We can sometimes act like that with other people. We act like it's our job to see how they are different than us. We're so focused on these differences, this 1% that we don't share, that we miss all that we have in common. And this is especially true when we look at the broader church It's so easy to focus on the disunity and the division, to lament how the church looks in America. And while there's a time and a place for doing this, I think it's better that we focus on what we can change, how we interact with other Christians, and whether that's in person or online or wherever you talk. Our starting point for dialogue should be areas of agreement. Let's emphasize the things that we are united in before moving to areas of disagreement. Those areas are important, but they must not get in the way of all the commonalities that we have. Starting with these areas of agreement makes makes disagreement much less personal, much less confrontational. It's no longer us versus them. We can agree to disagree, but let's start with what we agree about. Let us recognize that despite our differences, we are co-ambassadors of Christ. Second, let's remember that we are servants of the king. And Jesus said, servants are not above their masters. In Jesus, we see the king humbling himself, taking the form of a servant to bring peace. So we follow him in announcing a message of reconciliation. Christ does not send us to bring retribution to the world, but terms of peace. We are called to implore and beg rebels to be reconciled to this gracious king. We recognize that we too were once rebels until Christ's peace came to us. 
We survived because he was treated like a rebel. He took the punishment for our rebellion. And we have to be clear, Christ's peace, terms of peace are non-negotiable. You must trust in him for salvation. But we don't need to present these terms of peace in an intentionally offensive manner. The message of the gospel is already offensive enough. We don't need to add to it. We don't need to be combative in bringing a message of reconciliation. So as we conclude, we've seen once again in these early chapters of Genesis, God planting the seeds of this grand story that will sprout in the rest of the Bible. And we see this once more in Genesis 10. I mentioned those summary statements earlier, how it had these fourfold designations of their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Well, what do we find at the end of the Bible? What Brian told us in the reading of the gospel, by your blood, you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. God's intention from the beginning was to extend his kingdom to the ends of the earth. Despite man's sin, he continued to pursue this end, scattering man for his own good and coming to rescue them at the cost of his own life. And he calls us to participate in this endeavor. Resurrection San Diego is meant to be an embassy of the kingdom of God. We are his ambassadors proclaiming a message of peace and reconciliation with the God of the universe through the blood of his son. Brothers and sisters, you have been reconciled to God. Rest in that truth. Rest in that blessing as you seek to bless others. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word and thank you for showing us more about your steadfastness, your long-suffering in caring for your people and the lengths that you will go to save them and to bring your kingdom for our good and for your glory. Father, help us to recognize that we have been reconciled to you. May that be our identity, and may that spur us on to share this news with others, that they too can be reconciled, that you come in peace, not judgment. Help us to share this message of reconciliation joyfully and non-combatively, and graciously help us to emphasize that we too were once rebels, that we are no better than others. Help us to share this as a church, to be an embassy of this kingdom that you will one day bring as Christ returns and the whole world is full of your glory. Father, we long for that day and we look forward to knowing that it's closer today even than yesterday. Help us to look towards that hope as we seek to love and serve you based on the love that you've shown us. In Jesus' name, amen.